Morning, Renaissance. My name is Meredith, and I'll be reading the scripture today from Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. In the land of Uz, there was a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the, angel came to pre- the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like, like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. The word of the Lord. You like that, right? I'm Jessica, Jordan's boss. <laughs> In case you didn't know, <laughs> laugh like that. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> so I want to take us all back to one of the happiest days of my life. It was May 15th, 2009 in... Uh, Chevy Chase, Maryland, and um, I was pretty excited because I was about to marry an amazing man, a guy named Jerron. There he is, and uh, we were standing in a grove surrounded by 175 of our closest family members and friends. My lacy dress was looking beautiful, the sun was shining, and um, as we were saying our vows, a small family of deer came out from the trees and seemed to look at our ceremony and bask in the whole thing. It was pretty great. And um, at the end of the ceremony, guest after guest came up to us and told us how it was just so apparent that God had brought us together and that he really had a great purpose for our lives. Now, fast forward a couple of months, and we're basking in the newlywed glow. And on a random Thursday evening, uh, Jerron decided he was going to go out on his motorcycle for a ride with some friends, as I decided to just kind of stay home and unwind from a long work day. So at about a little after 9 p.m., uh, I had faded off into a nap, and the doorbell rang. So I hopped up, a little confused, not sure who it was. 
And when I opened the door, it was the girlfriend of one of the friends that Jerron had been out riding with. And she said, Jerron's been in an accident. And at that moment, panic just coursed through my body. Um, but she quickly reassured me. She said, don't worry, everything's okay. Um, he's been rushed in an ambulance to a nearby hospital. I'll give you a ride there. So I said, okay, great. So we hop in the car, we drive to the hospital, and um, first I get to see one of his friends who has tears in his eyes, but he tells me, you know, he's in bad shape, but he's okay. He's got a broken foot, and he was complaining about some pain in his chest, but he's going to be all right. I said, okay, well, let's go in, let's check in, let's figure out what we're doing. So check in, um, talk to a nurse who's on duty there, and he says, yeah, you know, come with me to the family room. I said, all right, and um, he said, you know, I really... I really just need you to be strong right now. And I said, okay, yeah, that's fine, that's cool. I can be strong, but you know, it's a broken foot that we're talking about, right? So what, what's the big deal? Why are you acting so strange? And he said, well, we're doing everything we can. I said, okay, that's great, I appreciate that. You're doing everything you can for his broken foot? And he said, no, we're doing everything we can to keep him alive. Um, and so I'm in the family room, surrounded by Jerron's biker buddies, and I, call my mom on the phone and I say, mom, we need to pray. Jerron's been in an accident, we need to pray. And we pray. I hang up the phone and I turn to everybody and I say, Jerron is going to be okay. You know, and I, I really believe that because I'm so certain and convinced of how special of a person he is and of how much living he has to do and of all the amazing things that God wants to use him for to do. And so we sit there in silence and a few minutes go by and the nurse comes back this time with a doctor. And the doctor calls for me and I raise my hand and he explains that Jerron had several of different injuries, many of them that cause a lot of internal bleeding and that they had drained the blood from his body and had tried to give it back to him, but it was just too much. His heart couldn't take it. He was sorry. And at that moment, I jumped out of my chair and I said, no, 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 no. Over and over, hoping that if I said no enough, I could make the news untrue. And I, I asked, I said, could you just go back? Could you go back and try, try? Like, there must be something that you can do to bring him back to life. But the truth was, he was gone, and the doctor said, I'm sorry. And so I gathered myself together as grown men, men around me, beginning to cry and cover their faces. And I steadied myself to make two of the hardest phone calls I've ever made in my entire life. I had to call Jerron's parents and tell them that their son had died and my heart broke two more times. People started to arrive at the hospital and things became a blur and I had to take one last look at him lying on the hospital bed, peaceful but gone and um, Eventually, it was time to leave the hospital. 
And I was left grappling with this new reality that my 29-year-old husband had died and I was a 26-year-old widow after being married just two and a half months. And I was left saying, now what? 2009, I guess, was the year of amazing weddings because I got married also. Uh, I was engaged and married to a beautiful, strong black woman, uh, Danielle. We got married in Baltimore. Uh, ain't no deer in Baltimore. It was a, we had a... <laughs> There's rats in Baltimore, but no, no deer. Uh, but it was a beautiful wedding. Uh, it was everything that Danielle wanted and much more than I wanted to pay for. Um, but it, it was an amazing day. And Danielle and I were living the, the honeymoon life, man. We went to Jamaica. We were uh, having a great time. Got back to New York. And we were really still in that honeymoon phase of marriage, right? She didn't even get on my nerves yet. It was, it was still a pretty amazing, amazing time. And about 10 months after we had gotten married, um, uh, she started feeling sick and kind of out of the blues. It's like, you know, she was never really a, a person that got sick too often. Um, and, you know, I said, hey, just go to the doctor because you've been like calling out of work a couple of days. She went to the doctor. The doctor says, hey, don't worry about it. You know, don't worry. There's this chest virus thing that's going around. Um, that's probably what it is. It's a chest virus. Take these pills and you'll be fine in no time. Uh, a couple of weeks passed and she was still getting worse and worse. And I said, you know what? Let's just go to the ER and put this thing to bed finally, let's just get this thing fixed, and whatever it is, we'll go and we'll get it taken care of. Uh, we got to the ER and they said, uh, there's actually some fluid around her heart and we have to admit her to the hospital. But hey, don't worry, don't worry. It's like, we'll give her some steroids and she'll be fine in no time. Uh, day after day, she wasn't getting fine. She was getting worse and, and worse, and so much so that she wasn't even able to stand at, at some point. And her lying heart rate, uh, just lying down in bed, was about 140. And anybody that works out, you know how ridiculous uh, that is. So doctors made a decision to take her to Columbia to do a heart surgery. But hey, don't worry. Don't worry. It's like a little heart procedure, right? You know when doctors call it a procedure instead of a surgery, trying to ease your, your fears? Uh, we're just going to make a small incision under her, under her breast, drain the fluid. She'll be back uh, to full strength in no time. Sent my parents home. I said, hey, don't worry about it. They're going to do the surgery tomorrow morning. Uh, and the surgeon took one look at her, her records and said, no, no, we're going to do this surgery tonight. So they took her into the OR, and there I was uh, with one of my best childhood friends. And I sat in, in the waiting room, um, waiting for them to come out. And 45 minutes passed. Nobody came out, and an hour passed, and, and nobody came out, and an hour and a half, and two hours, and two and a half hours, and three hours came out, and, and nobody was saying anything. All I saw was nurses running back and forth into the operating room with bloody rags. Finally, uh, the surgeon comes out, and something like uh, an episode uh, of TV, uh, the surgeon comes out, takes off his hat, and looks at me and says, hey, Mr. Rice, take a seat. Now, these are the last words you ever, ever in a million years want to hear. And he says, hey, Mr. Rice, uh, um, thankfully she's stable right now, but as soon as we took her into the, to the um, OR, as soon as we anesthetized her, she almost died on the operating table. And honestly, what's going on in her heart, I I've never seen that before. But we were hopeful. Um, Definitely feeling alone. I remember that night going home and just crying like a, like a baby, feeling so alone. How is God letting this happen? 
See, this was all coming about a week or two after I had graduated from seminary. Uh, Danielle and I were making plans to start a church together. I was going to leave uh, the, le- the, the evil empire of law and go start a church. And this was something that God had to bless. And Danielle was a huge piece of me wanting to leave law and go into ministry. So, no, God, God, you got to take care of us, man. Like, this is, that's not a good story at all. So um, days and days pass, and we're still trying to figure out what it is that caused um, the, the, the swelling uh, in her heart and the fluid in her heart. And the cardiologist woke me up one morning at about 6.15. I was sleeping in a recliner outside of the ICU, and he says, Mr. Rice, I'm not going to beat around the bush. Um, it's the worst news possible. Uh, Danielle has cancer, and, and not just any cancer, but a, a cancer called primary cardiac angiosarcoma. It's a tumor that starts on your heart. Uh, there's only about 20 cases a year in the United States, uh, and it's extremely rare and, and always fatal. So I did what anybody else would do, uh, any husband would do, any friend or family member would do. When you get really bad news like that, something that you don't understand, you turn to the big G in the sky. Google, right? And then you Google everything <laughs> you can find about primary cardiac angiosarcoma. <laughs> and page after page, I was getting worse and, and worse news. Like, I was like on page seven of Google trying to find something. And like, once you get past page two, like, you're not really in reliable territory anymore, right? <laughs> like, don't go to the dentist on page seven of Google searches. He'll have your teeth jacked up, trust me. But in this time, um, we were wrestling so much so with. What in the world was going on? See, Danielle and I did everything right. We waited until marriage. We had gone to church together. We had dreamed about starting a, a church together, and this was the last thing that we thought was going to happen. So, you know, we were faithful and still hoping that God would do something uh, to heal her, her body, and she started actually doing really, really well uh, when she first got diagnosed, and she was uh, blowing past all the expectations, and she actually went into remission for a couple of months and uh, as fast as the cancer went away, it came back about seven months later. And I'll never forget uh, sitting in the doctor's office on April 1st and giving me the, what seemed like the cruelest April Fool's joke of, of all times. He says, Mr. Rice, your wife has about a month to live. We went home. There was nothing the hospital could do for her. Uh, my last gift to her was to let her stay at home as long as possible. And um, April 23rd, we woke up in the morning. She wasn't feeling too great. Um, and I said, you know what, even though you have an appointment later that week or that day, whatever, I'm just going to take you to the hospital now, and we were talking and, you know, trying to make light of it and have jokes in, in the car, and uh, we, we pull up to the ER, and as soon as I, I look over uh, to check on her, see how she's doing, I look over and I realize she had stopped breathing. And for a long time, I wondered, like, God, you could have just let her live for, like, 45 more seconds, and had you let her live for like another minute or two minutes, or if I didn't catch, if I didn't miss that red light, if that one dude would have signaled and not cut me off, I would have been able to escape this horrible nightmare of having to carry my lifeless uh, uh, wife's body into the ER screaming for help, and, you know, watching them cut off her clothes and and trying to resuscitate her, and they did for a couple of hours, Um, but later that night, um, surrounded by family and, and friends, she died. And what was a horrible nightmare was somehow just feeling like it was just starting. And there I was, uh, 28 years old, 29 years old, uh, wondering what's, what's next, now what? So this morning, 
Jordan and I shared our stories not to depress you, contrary to how it might seem. Um, but because we're starting a new sermon series here at Renaissance um, called The Theology of Suffering, and when we talk about suffering, we're talking about undergoing pain, hardship, distress, and whether it's the loss of a loved one, a spouse, whether it's depression, a miscarriage, cancer, terror attacks around the world, sexism, persecution, we know that suffering is a part of life, whether we like it or not. And so many times what we see is that suffering, perhaps more than any other thing, is the thing that gets in the way and makes it so hard to have faith in God. Um, but we think it's so critical, it's so important that we as a people learn how to maintain, to maintain a, a life of purpose in the face of adversity if we're going to, to survive all the crazy things going on around us. And that's what we want to talk about in the next few weeks. And we shared our stories really because we want you to know this isn't going to be a bunch of neatly packaged cliches that we're reciting, but that this is going to be something we're sharing from our hearts, having walked with God through our own suffering. And you might be new to church. If so, welcome. You might not know where you stand or what you believe about God or Jesus, but I think wherever we are on the spectrum, I think we can all agree that we're trying to make sense of the pain that's very real that we're experiencing in our lives. And so we really have to learn, it is so critical that we learn how to maintain a life of purpose in the face of painful adversity. And you know, we live in a world where we hate pain, especially in the Western world, we wanna avoid pain at all costs, you know, as opposed to eating right and working out, we wanna take the pill. If, you know, as opposed to lugging our shopping bags around New York City, we want Amazon Prime to deliver things. I get Amazon packages like every day at the house. I don't really know. Another package, okay. <laughs> um, you know, we hate pain. We hate pain and suffering and we try to avoid it at all costs. I think the other thing, though, too, at the heart of um, our avoidance of pain and where we struggle when it comes to faith in God is that we truly believe that if we are following God, it should protect us from experiencing suffering, um, that it's something we shouldn't have to deal with. And so often as it does, Scripture paints a very different picture. Scripture shows us time and time again Contrary to what we'd like to believe, that old adage of bad things shouldn't happen to good people, Scripture shows people who loved God, who followed God, who walked with God, who experienced very real pain and suffering. Yeah, that's definitely real. I remember a, well, a couple of days uh, where I would be at the hospital with Danielle at Columbia, and I would walk around the corner to go to the halal truck or something. And um, as I was walking to the halal truck, I was passing by uh, like a methadone clinic. And I remember one day being so angry. Uh, my wife was upstairs literally dying, uh, and she had dotted every I and crossed every T. And there's these dudes out here that are laughing and having a good time, and they're, they're poisoning their bodies. Like, 
No, 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 that makes no sense whatsoever. It should be the opposite. They should be upstairs dying and I should be out here, um, uh, we should be out here laughing, but the opposite was the case. And like just just said, uh, as Meredith read in the scripture earlier in Job, we see a picture uh, not of what I guess our culture tells us, certainly that uh, bad things won't happen to good people, but we see uh, uh, an abstract of a guy named Job. And if you're new to church and you're new to reading scripture, uh, I guarantee you reading the book of Job's, uh, Job is one of the most fascinating things that you, could, that you could do. That might be a really great place for you to start. Uh, but let me give you a, a little bit of a catch up to the story, the Cliff Notes version. This dude Job was, as scripture called him, blameless. Uh, it wasn't mean he was perfect, but he was a blameless dude, right? Think about the person that you know in your life that is like, oh, that's a really great woman, Right? Well, that's a really great dude. The person that makes you feel like a jerk just being around them, right? That person. And that, that, was, that was Job. And in a matter of almost like an instant, it seemed, in his life, he lost his financial well-being. He lost his kids. He lost his own uh, personal health. And his life went from amazing to terrible in a matter of moments. And, and we see here in the book of Job something that is extremely, extremely real. Uh, that um, we see this ancient drama of suffering. And the words of this book speak to our hearts, to, to redirect our hearts that, listen, even though it's, it's easier and it's better to believe that uh, life will never uh, give us anything that we don't want to take. And if I follow Jesus good enough, um, I, you know, he'll never let anything bad happen to me. And one of the most dangerous things that you can believe, and, and as we're unpacking this, this series on the theology of suffering, one of the things that if, if you walk away feeling nothing else besides this, I, I hope you'll, you'll, you'll remember this, that suffering is a very real thing. Suffering is, and difficulty and pain is something that is, is, is unavoidable in our lives. And if something is happening to you, if your life is difficult, uh, if, if you're the one, you know, if you're the ones that's, that's going through a really difficult time right now, uh, as Jessica mentioned earlier, there's only three different types of people. There's people who have suffered, are suffering, or will suffer. And at some point, we're all going to have to learn how to maintain a life of purpose in the midst of painful adversity. In order to do that, there's a couple of things that we want you guys to, to really focus in on. Uh, and this, quite frankly, is the sermon that I would have preached to old Jordan back in the day. So if Jordan was sitting in the congregation, I would, like, I would uh, look him dead in the eyes, and, and this is what I would want him to know. I'd want him to know that it was real, and I'd want him to know that as he embraces it, he could, A, you're going to get through this. You're going to get through this. And B, uh, there's a couple of things that we want to unpack. And the first of that is, listen, when life is difficult, you have to grieve honestly. When life is difficult, you have to grieve honestly. And it's okay to be angry, to be disappointed, to be confused, to be hurt, to be frustrated. This is all okay. Now, I think Christians were actually worse at this than almost anybody on the planet um, because we're always on trying to put on a, a happy, faithful face. Well, praise the Lord, you know, I got fired from my job, but uh, my landlord's evicting me, but God is good. Listen, I, I know the temptation to do that, to put on a face, face that seems faithful and all this other stuff, but you're not being faithful if you're not uh, wrestling with your true emotions and how you really feel. You're not being faithful to yourself, and you're certainly not being faithful to God. God doesn't expect that you pretend and gloss over realities and pain and hardship in your life. 
and that you need to find and I need to find avenues to get um, this stuff out of us and to grieve honestly. For a lot of people, it's writing that stuff down, putting it on paper, putting it on your, your iPhone, uh, just literally writing it and getting it out of your head onto a piece of paper or talking to friends or a counselor or a therapist or, or talking to um, pastors or somebody, but you have to grieve. Uh, we see Job grieving very honestly in, in chapter 1, verse 20. It says, Then Job arose, arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. Right? This is what Job does. He rips his clothes. He doesn't care how new they are. And he shaves his head. And this was the culturally appropriate way that he can show, uh, that he could show at the time that he was in mourning. He wasn't feeling great. He was actually feeling pretty miserable. So miserable that Job prays some really honest stuff. He says uh, in chapter 3 that um, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. He was basically saying, like, yo, I wish that the day that I was born didn't even exist. Now, I want to be real sensitive here because I know there are people in this room uh, who know very acutely and know very in a real way what it feels like to wish that you hadn't even been born. And I'm going to tell you this right now. To pretend like you don't feel that, to pretend like you're not feeling pain, to pretend like it's all going to be all right later, you're doing yourself a disservice. The only way to get through this is to first grieve honestly. And here's what we see in the scripture, a good theology of suffering, not somebody putting on a face um, to pretend like everything is gravy, but just to be real, keep it all the way live. Now, I had a couple of people in my life that I could talk to, and I didn't, you know, even though I went to seminary, and even though I had, um, you know, studied the Bible and all this other stuff, listen, I was, if you just listened to like 30 seconds of that conversation, I don't know if you'd be sitting here right now um, trusting me as your pastor, um, because it didn't sound like it was like I'm the man full of faith, and I, you know I'm not a, I'm not sorry for that because I was grieving honestly, and that was a very necessary thing for me to do. And the second thing that uh, I want to touch on is to pray through our pain, to pray through your pain, and 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 this is not to um, give this a euphemism, um, but we see that all throughout Job, um, and we're going to unpack some of this stuff in later weeks. All throughout Job, Job wasn't just keeping the stuff inside, but he was constantly wrestling with God. And that some of my prayers at the time, and some of your prayers need to be at these times, prayers through tears, prayers uh, yelling at God. And guess what? God can handle your, your anger, your frustration, your confusion. God can handle all of that stuff. And here's why prayer is so vital and so necessary in these moments. Uh, in the moments where you're going through pain and adversary, adversity, here's what we're tempted to believe. We're tempted to believe that God isn't with us. We're tempted to believe that God can't do anything, that God isn't powerful. We're tempted to believe that God doesn't care about what's going on in our lives. And and trust me, I know how real of a feeling that can be. And in prayer, this is what we do. We submit our lives and our hearts to someone that we can't see, we can't touch, and and we can't feel. And in this act, we're rebelling against our flesh, and we're submitting our lives to God in real ways. And we're reconnecting ourselves to the Father who, who loves us, and we're not drifting off by ourselves and, and, and going down a path where God is nowhere near the conversation. And listen, the only way that we'll be able to maintain a life uh, of purpose in the midst of adversity is not to go on your own, but to also seek that divine help. Now, C.S. Lewis once said that God whispers to us in our pleasure and screams to us in our pain. 
And some of the best prayers, some of the, the real connection where God really makes you to be the person that God wants to make you, that stuff happens in these dark moments. So after we've grieved honestly and taken our honest prayers to God, um, I think it's really important that we reorder our loves. So suffering just exposes so much about who we are as people and what we're building our lives on. We can really allow suffering to refine our character, to build up all those things we've been saying we wish we had more of, whether it's the compassion for others or the patience or the long-suffering or the fortitude to kind of navigate any kind of situation if we allow suffering to really work out in, its lo- in our lives. Suffering humbles and shows us that we're not in control as we'd like to think that we are. I certainly can identify with that having seen my life change in seemingly an instant. And, you know, really when we are humbled, um, a lot of things just get called into question. We start to question the things that we feel we're entitled to having, you know, that God, again, is supposed to protect us from, or God is just supposed to give to us, or I'm supposed to finish my degree in three and a half years, and I'm supposed to get this job, and I'm supposed to get this money, and I'm supposed to get this house, and I'm supposed to get this relationship, and I'm supposed to get this child, and on and on and on and on. All of those entitlements get called into question And it really causes us to step outside of ourselves a bit and step outside of the little kingdoms that we're building for ourselves as opposed to focusing on what God's will is for our lives and what God's will is in our world. Suffering exposes the things that have become, frankly, just too important to us, whether that's a person or a career or a bank statement or an accomplishment. I know for myself, After Jerron died, I seriously had to be confronted with the question of, do I bank my identity on being a child of God, or do I bank my identity on being someone's wife? Do I bank my identity on, you know, being happy-go-lucky Jessica, who seemingly has it all together, but now is the Jessica who can't sit at a dinner conversation with friends without crumbling into tears? Through suffering, I asked myself, Is God enough? And I think that is one of the most crucial things that suffering causes us to do. Is God enough? Or does it have to be God plus X, Y, Z for me? Is my perception of God's goodness even contingent upon me having that X, Y, and Z? Because I think it's so interesting, and this is something that Jordan and I even talked about the very first conversation we had when we did meet, but You know, after we got married and people would hear our story, people always emphatically would say, oh my gosh, that's amazing. God is good. And, you know, Jordan and I would always agree with that because we wholeheartedly believe that God is good. But it is so important to note that we know from having tread through the trenches that God isn't just good because we got a second chance at love. God was good when Jordan was sitting in an oncology ward, and God was good when I was crying on my bathroom floor. God is good. That is a finite, firm statement. Um, And it's not contingent upon me getting the things that I want. 
All of us want to be the kind of people who can handle what life throws at us. And if we want to be the type of people who can maintain a life of purpose in the face of adversity, we really are going to have to learn to reorganize our priorities and reorganize and reorder our loves. And then the fourth and final thing that we would say we wish someone had told us and just still rings true is that we need to look at the cross, that good old cross that we always come back to, right? It's an interesting thing because the world wants a God whose followers are blessed and successful when they grit their teeth and dot every I and cross every T and follow all the rules, that good things will happen to good people. That's what the world wants. But Christianity couldn't be more contrary to that. In Christianity, we get the best glimpse of God's character when looking at the weakness, suffering, and death of Jesus Christ on the cross. In weakness, we see God. And, you know, it's just at the cross that we see incredible suffering, um, a savior who understands our pain, and I can say I took such great comfort in that, in looking at the cross and knowing that God understood what I was going through. And also when I look at the cross, though, we just see such great hope at the very same time in the midst of looking at that suffering. We see that, you know, Everything that um, was going on there, though, while it looked bleak, God was up to something so incredibly greater than what we could imagine. I often think about what Jesus's followers must have been thinking as they looked up and they saw their leader on the cross, beaten, pierced, bloodied, suffering, dying before them. This was the guy. This was their leader who was going to overturn a kingdom and lead them all into glory. And in a moment, like in my moment, God shattered their dreams, but he allowed them to suffer, and he allowed his son to suffer with something much greater in mind, knowing that he was reconciling the world to himself, knowing that through giving his only son on the cross that everyone who believed in him would be forgiven and would have eternal life. So this creator of the universe he was experiencing pain to bring us back to himself. That's a God that gives our lives meaning. That's a God that can sustain us. Not one that doesn't know your pain and not one that doesn't suffer for us. So Jesus' message is both sobering and encouraging. And I want to turn to John 16:33. It should come on the screen. Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will have tribulation. You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Life only has meaning if we have hope that suffering and disappointment cannot destroy. And in Jesus and his resurrection, we have that kind of hope. We can't lose sight of the cross. Everything else fades. Everything else falls away. But God's love for us in Christ never fails. There isn't peace found in understanding everything that happens in your life. You know, even if you ask Jordan and I today, 
I don't think either of us could say, yes, this is exactly why. This all makes sense. This is why Jerron had to die. This is why Danielle had to die. And as you can see, it still brings us great sadness to think about their death. So everything isn't going to be fixed and neat. That's not where the peace comes from. The peace comes from knowing that the hands of the one that went to the cross for you are the same hands that will carry you through any and everything that you face in your life. That's the gospel truth, brothers and sisters. Uh, we want to pray for you guys. Um, certainly today, after service, we're going to have prayer, and we're going to call people up for that. Uh, but right now, I would, just, I would just love to pray for everybody sitting right where you are, for myself and for everybody else, because I, I know how much this can unearth uh, stuff that's going on in your, in your life, and it's calling us to kind of confront some of the stuff that we'd rather not uh, have to confront. So let me, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the hands that are pierced, and those are the hands that are going to carry us through. Father, I don't know that uh, we'll ever get completely perfect answers to why things work the way that they do, uh, God. And even if we did get those answers, we probably wouldn't understand it anyway. Uh, Father, today, uh, those, you know the crevices of our heart. You know the stories. You know the things that we wish were not going on. You know the things that we would love, love, love to be over. And Father, I pray that you would fix hurts, fix relationships, and mend people, God, and, and bring people back to you and, and to restore situations. But Father, in the meantime, God, I pray that you would give people courage to, to grieve honestly and to trust that you would, they would not be lost in their grieving. Father, I pray that they would not push you aside um, when they didn't get what they wanted, but they would continue their prayers through you and that we would honestly reorder our, lo our loves and keep you at the top. And Father, when all else fails, I pray that we would look to the cross. God, the old rugged cross where our true answers are found, where meaning is found, where suffering and, and darkness and depression cannot stand against the cross's triumphs. So, Father, as we continue to move throughout the service and throughout our days, I just pray that you would uh, give us that courage, and, God, you would give us uh, the ability to suffer well uh, when we're in these difficult moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.